This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The David Pakman Show, The Young Turks, The Majority Report, Jim Hightower, and The Tom Hartman Program. And a note for some of our more anti-authoritarian listeners, this episode may make you want to tear off your shirt and get a divorce just because you can. You've been warned. Uh, North Carolina State Representative Rain Brown, apparently that is her real name, and some of uh, the colleagues. You know what? This is actually weird. Is Rain Brown a man or a woman? I've seen evidence of both, and I don't mean physical evidence. In other words, <laughs> let me take a step back. <laughs> what, what I mean here is that I've seen, I've seen Rain Brown referred to as he and as she. Um, it's a woman. It's a woman. That's what I thought. Yeah. Okay. Rain Brown and some of her colleagues are putting together a bill to criminalize nipple exposure in North Carolina. And this is House Bill 34. It says that nipple exposure would be a Class H felony. Okay, And the, the actual legislation would say external organs of sex and of excretion, including the nipple or any portion of the areola or of the human female breast. And she says this may seem frivolous, but there are some communities across the state where uh, there is a for whom this issue is not a laughing matter, Lewis. So this is this is something we need to address very, very seriously. And she said this was prompted by Asheville's second annual topless protest and women's rally. And, uh, you know, this is, this is, uh, it drew a dozen women because of a protest with a dozen women. Small government conservatives, we need legislation about nipples. Yeah, uh, I bet you, you know, way more than a dozen children's lives were ruined when they saw, you know, uh, a nipple. That's the thing. I would have been behind this law, Lewis, if it had been just the nipple, because the nipple really does destroy the lives of children who see it. Putting aside the fact that most children uh, actually get all of their food from nipples for, you know, for a while in their lives. But putting that obvious piece of information aside, just seeing a nipple for like a nine-year-old ruins their life. But I've not read anything about errant areolas damaging anybody. So that's the problem I have. I'm fine with the nipple stuff, but areolas being included in this, I have a problem with that. Yeah, and do we think this is going to pass? I don't know, a but felony? what an obsession with sex now, in this even country. Even if it's an accidental nipple slip. It's still, yeah. Right, still it's, a felony. It doesn't matter, unless you're breastfeeding, in which case I guess it's fine. Yeah, breastfeeding's okay for some reason. Yeah, it, it, it's just, you know, if somebody is at the beach and uh, a nipple is accidentally exposed, that's a felony. Um, but, you know, that's uh, okay, very good. So We're if you, obsessed if you, with sex in this country, right? In if, a weird way. Yeah, if this is if you live in North Carolina... You might want to um, buy some pasties. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if, if I were a woman living in North Carolina, I would probably be, to all the time, I w even if it's the middle of summer, I would have n some kind of nipple covering, a couple of bras, a tank top, a long sleeve shirt, a sweater, and then a tarp, and then a hazmat suit, and then a beekeeper's outfit, and then a suit of armor, mm -hmm. just to make sure I don't have an accidental slip. Yeah. Well, the thing, the funny thing here is it seems that as long as you're just wearing a pasty, the rest of your breast can be exposed. Well, the funny thing is there's a lot of men who develop, I guess they're called moobs. We don't have to go further than that. And really... It's it's more of a breast than many women have, but this only applies to women. Right. Um, it's just what is what is going on here? I don't I don't get it. North Carolina.
He is the voice of the Republican Party, uh, none other than Rush Limbaugh. And he laments, he wails, the left <laughs> has beaten us. So, uh, JR, let's go to the video. The purpose of this program has been to create as large a body of informed voting citizens as possible. And while we've been largely, we've been profoundly successful at that, the left has beaten us. They have created far more low information, unaware, uneducated people than we've been able to keep up with. And despite overwhelming success in creating more and more people who are informed and active and involved, the left, with control of the education system, control of the <laughs> pop culture, movies, TVs, books, music, we've just been outnumbered. Yeah. And the way they've done it is to create more and more dependency, and then every so often tell those people that they're about to lose it all because of the Republicans. That's fantastic. So, Jimmy, that's great. Is it true? Has a left beaten us? Whatever us means. <laughs> yeah. Well, I like how he says they. Oh, they control everything now. They control the. So it's again. It's it's that pretend they're victims, right? It's again. You're being. You're the poor conservative who has no power. When are rich white guys ever going to get their turn in America? When is it going to be their chance? But you know what though? Uh, he's actually right. The left has one, and he and every single polling shows that. Uh, the American public leans heavily left. Uh, the Republican ideology has lost, and they have lost soundly. So let's go to all the issues, uh, issue by issue. On taxes and the deficit, uh, we have 76% say we should reduce the deficit with a combination of tax increases and spending cuts. Republicans want only spending cuts, no tax increases. So that would be three-quarters of the American people agree with the Democrats' position on that. Absolutely. Okay. The left has won on that. The left has won. Yeah, so let's go to minimum wage. What does the public say about minimum wage? By a 71 to 26% margin, the public favors increasing the minimum wage from 7.25 an hour to $9 an hour. That, now, that includes 50% of Republicans agree with raising the minimum wage to $9. 50% of Republicans agree with that. Absolutely. So, so it's not only the left winning, the left's ideas are now being adopted by the right. Because it's the correct ideas. Um, yes. And we'll get to that in a second. So, uh, but let's go to, go to all the issues. Okay. Let's go to gun control next. On gun control, by a 67 to 29% margin, Americans favor passing major new gun legislation in the next few years. And if you dig a little bit deeper, there's about an 85% uh, approval for background checks. And, you know, well over 50% approval for limiting the magazine capacities of guns and, um, and for batting assault weapons. So, again, the left, totally winning. How about climate change? On climate change, 54% uh, to 34%, the priority for addressing the nation's energy supply should be developing alternative energy sources over increased production of fossil fuels. Look at that. Wow. Look at that. That's pretty, that's pretty good. Yes. So, you know, we want solar. We want wind. We want the ability to increase um, production of energy through those sources rather than through fossil fuel, which is, you know, coal, clean coal, which is the same thing, but they just put the word clean in front of it, um, and the Exxon, uh, well, the Keystone, Exxon pipeline, all of that. Americans are not in favor of that. They want alternative, clean energy sources. But who is in favor of the Exxon Keystone pipeline? Who is in favor of more fossil fuels? 
corporations. Corporations, right. um, big energy, right? So right. oil comes. So they're in fact, so that's why it's a. Even though the people are for are, are for renewable and against fossil fuels, doesn't matter that much because we all know who runs the show. Okay, what's your next stat? All right, so we have uh, immigration. So let's see what the public says about immigration. Okay, fifty uh, percent says Obama has a better approach. And only 34% says congressional Republicans have a better approach. And that means you know, the pathway to citizenship, mm -hmm. allowing these people who are living here uh, in the shadows without many of the rights that Americans enjoy to have, a, have the ability to work their way to having that at some point. Republicans, uh, they like to pretend um, that they can just make these people stay forever in the shadows and deport them all um, or self-deport. Self-deport. Yes, because that's always very uh, so You make life so attractive. miserable for people in America that they want to get the hell out of it. And then let's go to gay marriage. So on gay marriage, uh, I mean, this number is trending in favor of progressives uh, more and more every single day. But right now, as it stands, it's 40% support for same-sex marriage, 30% support for same-sex civil unions, and only 24% think that um, there should not be allowed to have any type of legal union for, for, uh, for same-sex couples. So that's 70% of Americans think that gays should be the, the least, the minimum, they should have a civil union. Yeah, and with all the rights that a marriage does—that's seventy percent. And I've seen other polls where uh, over fifty percent of people are actually now in favor of gay, gay marriage. marriage. Yes, yeah. so I thought that was low too. Yeah, that's that's. Yeah, I'm not sure when this was taken, but um, again, uh, the left has won. And here's a here's a the thing: they've always won. The left has always won. Progressive have always won throughout history. So, so let's go back throughout history and see what they won on. They wanted the issue of slavery. Right. They wanted the issue of uh, segregation and integration. Trust uh, busting. Yes, uh, labor rights, women's voting rights. Uh, they've won on issues of gay marriage. They have won on every single issue. It's always leans progressive. That's called progressive. They progress. And conservatives are just kind of hanging on to the status quo, which we always know moves forward. So that's what I, you know, I never understand. It's like, so what, what thing did the conservatives ever champion that came to be? I mean, uh, I'm sure there's got to be, right? Well, they've been wrong on every single issue. I mean, they have been wrong. They've been against, they've been on the wrong side of history every single time. No, I, they were I, against interracial marriage. They're against gay marriage. Yes. They're against uh, integration. They think races should be kept separately. They're against the 40-hour work week, overtime yes. pay. They're against the Family Weekends. Child Leave Act. They're against right? child labor rights. Right. Uh, they're against all of that, um, and they Yet, lost. Yes. They still get 49 percent of the vote. <laughs> they do. It's amazing, as Jenk would say, wolf-pack.com. I'm, I'm all for that. evidence of this split in the Republican Party comes in the form of a Pew Research poll that came out saying that 6 in 10 Americans view the Republican Party as out of touch with the American people. 52% of, <clears throat> of Americans believe the party is too extreme. But far more interesting than that top line is that more than one in three, 36% of Republicans, say that their own party 
is out of touch with the American people. 30% of Republicans say their party isn't open to change, while just 1 in 10 Democrats say the same thing of their side. 69% of Republicans have a favorable impression of their own party. 87% of Democrats have a favorable impression. The Republican Party has become too extreme for the Republican Party. But for the white-knuckled, I don't know, 30-odd, 40% of the nation, 35% of the nation perhaps, that still believes George Bush was a great president, <laughs> that the gays are going to come and uh, inculcate your children into gayhood, that... Uh, Immigration is the problem. That immigrants are dirty and bad. That uh, they're coming to take our guns with huge magnets that are in their black helicopters. And this is why the Republican Party is now uh, a, will be a permanent minority party to the extent that anything is permanent. Maybe when my daughter is hosting the show, if you continue with your membership, um, maybe she will say something different. For all we know, the majority of part with Myla Cedar could become of the Alex Jones network. That's right. <laughs> She's very, very uptight about what's happening with the UN. She can't sleep. I say, why can't you sleep? Agenda 21. Agenda 21. And how do I argue with that? How, how do I argue with that? Here at Best of the Left, supporting the good works of others is our entire reason for existence. Since the beginning of 2006, I've been making this show to highlight what I consider to be some of the best of the truly liberal media. Now I'm working on several ways to promote the best progressive activism around. Ruminate for a moment on whether you enjoy this show or consider its goals to be worthwhile, and if you do, please consider supporting this work by becoming a member for as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support. Herman Cain is now a newly hired Fox News contributor. They seem to be hiring a whole variety of people, including Scott Brown, and, and they got rid of Sarah Palin. So big changes are happening at Fox. And Herman Cain says, when asked by Bill O'Reilly, how is this guy so popular? How is President Obama so popular? He says, well, he, uh, we have a severe ignorance problem, and he received the vote of 51% of, of the electorate, which was misled enough to vote for him. Now, of course, all of the facts completely contradict Herman Cain's assertions, and we'll go through them piece by piece. But first, Lewis, just to set this up, let's look at what Herman Cain had to say on the O'Reilly factor. Here we go. Then getting results. Why is he popular, though, uh, Mr. Kane? I mean, the guy has really not solved many problems. I mean, that's what <laughs> it comes down to. Right. So why is he so popular? Yeah, tell us. He is so popular 
because 51% of the voters were misled <laughs> enough to vote for him. Oh, come on. You think, you think we're that? I mean, after that long, long campaign that you and all the other Republican hopefuls engaged yes. in, and then Mitt Romney has a billion dollars to spend on his advertising, and you're telling me that the American people were misled? I mean, how dumb they are were we? Mis <laughs> yes, well, we are that dumb. Now, keep in mind, not everybody. Remember, he got 51% of the popular vote. So when you say all of America, no, no. you know what I'm talking about. Of the, the majority, people. I know what you're talking the about. Majority sets I know what the you're tone, talking about. The majority yes. sets the tone and the direction of the country. Yes. Here we go. Yes, and we have a severe ignorance problem <laughs> with the people who are so mesmerized by his popularity <laughs> that they are not looking at the facts. Right. So Herman Cain is the exact wrong per he he's a member of the exact wrong party to be making this argument and he's making this argument on the exact wrong network but he's absolutely right we do have an ignorance problem in yeah. this country that's right but he's making the wrong one so remember during his own presidential campaign herman cain mocked the foreign policy question about uzbekistan calling it ubeki becky becky stan stan and he insisted he doesn't need to know who the country's leader is he also was completely perplexed by a question on libya asking the reporter which one is libya remember that incident yes yeah so he's not really the right guy to ask about ignorance but let's listen to what he had to say historically republicans and fox news viewers hold more misperceptions than democratic voters who get their news elsewhere so this dates all the way back to a PIPA study back in 2004 and countless studies since which showed that Republicans and Fox News viewers are significantly more likely to have believed that weapons of mass destruction were found in Iraq, that Saddam Hussein was connected to 9-11, that the world supported going into Iraq, and we've had countless studies since showing that these misperceptions, just flat out misperceptions, things that are just not true, are believed at much higher rates among people who primarily get their news from Fox News and among Republican voters. And this goes even recently. Republicans way more likely to think President Obama was not born in the U.S. Also, Fox News viewers way more likely to think that and any number of other misconceptions. So we have an ignorance problem, Lewis. The problem is it's on Herman Cain's, Cain's side and particularly on the TV network that Herman Cain works for. Right. Now, if we did not have an ignorance problem, yeah. Obama probably would have won... 80% of the <laughs> That's exactly vote. right. That's exactly right. That's the incredible thing. Yeah. But these guys will never get it, Natan. Yeah, I mean, anecdotally, I know uninformed people on both sides. I know exactly. people who give really poor reasons for having voted for Obama, and obviously the same on the opposite side. But it's indisputable, according to the evidence, that the more education you have, the more likely you are to be liberal. Yes, yeah, no question about it. Okay, what what do you think is the best thing of the thing about the show that is best and most appealing to to somebody who listens or watches? Um, let's see. You see, I would have to think about that. <laughs> is, this, is this the that hard of a question? Is it that is. What? It is a hard question. It's like, what is the meaning of life? You can't just uh, you can't just throw something out there. All right. Well, you know what? None of us know what the what what's good about this show. What None we know is we have a show. We know the show exists. Pretty much. Well, if that doesn't make you curious. I don't know what will. Check out the David Pakman show at davidpakman.com. Let's go talk about Louis Gohmert. I'm just having fun there with the Gubert stuff. It doesn't make sense, but work with me. Okay. 
Hey, uh, he uh, was giving a speech recently about the immorality of spending. He got a little carried away. Let's listen. People have got to understand that we're serious about stopping the massive load we are putting on our children and their children. It is one of the most immoral things this country has ever done. I've got a massive load and I don't know where to put it. And you got to watch out for the children with the massive load. Okay. All right. Look, so far, not that outrageous, but he's about to make it worse. Slavery and abortion, uh, the two most horrendous things this country has done. But when you think about the immorality of wild, lavish spending on our generation and forcing future generations to do without essentials just so we can live lavishly now, it's pretty immoral. Whoa, whoa, whoa. First of all, he was merciful. And said, okay, slavery a little worse than deficit spending. Oh, thanks God. <laughs> okay. But did, to call it one of the most immoral things the country's ever done, there was that little thing we did to the Native Americans where we killed most of them. There's that thing with the nuclear bombs. Now, look, a lot of people think that it was justified. I'm not sure I'm among them, but we did nuke 100,000 citizens, at least, in two different cities let alone the fire bombings of Tokyo, Dresden, etc. And you might say, hey, we're in the middle of a war, let alone Agent Orange in Vietnam and the fire bombings of civilians there. And the list goes on and on and on. Now, look, we've also done some great things in the country. I'm not trying to blame people for what happened two, three hundred years ago. But to say that de a little bit of deficit spending is one of the most immoral things we've ever done, only Louis Gubert would say such a thing. That's ridiculous. And by the way, they did austerity spending in uh, uh, Great Britain. They're about to hit a triple dip recession. How's that for immoral? That winds up hurting the whole country. It sets everybody back. So we have an honest disagreement on what level of deficit spending we should do. And by the way, I think we should do less deficit spending. But to call it one of the most immoral things we've done in the country is the typical Louis Gohmert insanity. Now, you guys know, did you see my tweets? I ran into Gohmert over the weekend. Isn't that hilarious? I'm randomly at this hotel, and um, I see the David Horowitz Freedom Center conference there. I'm like, David Horowitz? That's that crazy conservative nut job. So I Googled it while I was at the hotel. And uh, they're like, yeah, the point of the conference was to stop liberal and Islamist infiltration of the country. And there I am, infiltrating them. <laughs> and you know who was there? Louis Gohmert, Michelle Bachman, Ron Johnson, um, and, and oh, uh, Ben Stein, and the list goes on and on, okay? And I went into one of their me meeting things, and that's where I saw Gohmert. And he's just sitting there. I, I, man, I couldn't do it. I was like, should I go up to him and say, hey, man, I just got to tell you, you're, I believe you're the number one dumbest congressman in America. Right? But I couldn't pull the trigger. So I, I kind of feel bad about it. But he's just sitting there writing some stupid speech, like that dumb grin on his face and his head shining and shit. And I, I, I didn't have the heart to do it to him. And they're showing a video about. All the Muslims are coming. And I thought of going in there and going, 
Over under on number of heart attacks would have been three. Okay. And then Mike was sure pointed out what I told him the story. Over under on number of shots fired in my direction would have been seven. Okay. The flip side is they probably would have missed and hit each other. <laughs> By the way, the entire I looked around, I can't speak for the whole convention, but of the ones of the people I saw, literally one hundred percent white. Not a black guy, not an Asian guy, not a Latino guy, nothing, not an Indian guy, nothing. Wall to wall white folks. And if, look, I, I I don't think I'm imagining this. I got like three or four sideways looks like. Now it could have been that I had like a baseball cap on and they were better dressed and stuff, so that's totally possible. But they are at a, <laughs> at a convention about Muslim and liberal infiltration. It's my bad that I didn't at least go up to the registration and say, Salam alaikum, what brings you here? <laughs> Listen to me, honey dear. Something's wrong with you, I feel. It's getting harder to please you. Harder and harder each year. I don't want to make it through. But you need a talking to. have a, a long history of having a problem with Bob Woodward that uh, goes back to his days of cheerleading uh, the strength of the executive in taking us to war in Iraq, despite the fact there was no reason to do so. The musculature of our great President George W. Bush. I can't remember what the book was that he wrote at that time, but it was... I don't know what it was, leadership or strength or he's so muscular or did you see that package? I can't remember what the title of it was. Uh, and uh, so much so that uh, back in the day when I was asked to host a fundraiser for a theater group in their reading of All the President's Men, which apparently there was a lot of big actors who were there and I don't know how big they were. They were some were a couple of uh, known at that time, uh, others not. We'll put a link up at least to the um, the piece that that thing was in Pointer at that point in the side. And I got up to introduce the piece, and Carl Bernstein was there, and I said it's appropriate that um, Bob Woodward is not here today because the Bob Woodward uh, who did that investigation and had that uh, sense of questioning the executive is long disappeared, and the. I got off the stage, the actors came up uh, for this reading in front of a f very crowded room full of uh, people at this fundraiser, and uh, they started in to do the reading of the movie, and Carl Bernstein was playing one of the roles, I can't remember which, and he, uh, the, the lines came to him about three lines in, and he stopped. <laughs> And essentially said, I have to disagree with what that guy, meaning me, said at the beginning of uh, this reading. Uh, and he, in no uncertain terms, went on to um, uh, lambast me and praise Bob Woodward to a mostly, mostly approving audience. There were some people who appreciated my comments. 
Not that many. Well, Bob Woodward is back, and uh, this is an appearance he made this morning on Joe Scarborough, talking about the president announcing as a result of the sequester, which has uh, cuts across the board, as uh, many of you know, that a aircraft carrier uh, will not be deployed because of these budgetary cuts. Listen to what Bob Woodward here says, okay, in response to the uh, USS Harry Truman, which was supposed to leave for the Persian Gulf, which will remain stateside. Listen to what uh, Bob Woodward has to say here. Can you imagine Ronald Reagan sitting there and saying, oh, by the way, I can't do this because of some budget document or George W. Bush saying, you know, I'm, I'm not going to invade Iraq because I can't get the aircraft carriers I need, or even Bill Clinton saying, you know, I'm not going to attack uh, Saddam Hussein's intelligence headquarters as he did when Clinton was president because of some budget document under the Constitution, the president um, is commander-in-chief and employs the force. And so we now have the president going out because of this piece of paper and this agreement. Uh, I can't do what I need to do uh, to protect the country. Uh, that's a kind yeah. of madness that it, I haven't seen a in a long time. Let me explain to you what that madness is. It is called the Constitution of the United States, wherein Congress has the right to appropriate monies and has the responsibility, the constitutional obligation to appropriate money. The budget document or agreement that Bob Woodward talks about is also referred to as law. Not just an agreement, not just a piece of paper. It just so happens that laws are written on piece of papers. In that way, he is correct. But the notion that Bob Woodward is criticizing President Obama for not breaking the law, essentially, for being bound by what Congress has voted upon in terms of appropriations, that he is not, and then going on to cite, essentially illegal acts by former presidents. I think when he's talking about Reagan, what he's referring to is probably the fact that we weren't supposed to fund the Contras, but did through secret dealings uh, with Iran. I think when he's referring to George Bush saying, I, I can't go to Iraq because I don't have what I need as in terms of like an authorization from Congress to wage war. This is the, 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 the fetishization of the executive power and the fact that President Obama will not override this law. It's just insane. I don't know what personal issues Bob Woodward has with the administration. I don't care. Uh, but this guy is a scourge. And I don't know how many years he's going to float on the work that he stumbled into 30, 40 years ago. Seems to me he owned, <coughs> owes uh, Richard Nixon an apology, if that's his perspective. Because as Bob Woodward says, he was the commander-in-chief. He can do whatever he wants. If the president does it, it can't be illegal. So, thanks, Bob Woodward. Keep talking. Because eventually, maybe I'll get an apology from Carl Bernstein. Now was I wrong? 
Iowa Republicans are pushing a bill that would make it more difficult to get a divorce. This is really weird. Uh, Congressman Ted Gassman, that's his name. Wow. I, I don't know what to tell you. According is he full to, of hot air? According to Radio Iowa says, it's time to look out for the children instead of constantly worrying about the adults. And he went on to talk about how divorce is near and dear to him, saying that his daughter and son-in-law recently were divorced. And he says, you know, there's a 16-year-old girl in the whole mix now, talking about his granddaughter. Guess what? What are the possibilities of her being more promiscuous? What are the possibilities of all those other things surrounding her life that a 16-year-old girl with hormones raging can get herself into? And the idea here is make a bill happen that would prohibit so-called no-fault divorces for parents of minors. So if, uh, if there is not a specific situation where someone has uh, cheated or other specific situations and there is a minor involved, you basically can't get divorced in those in those cases. I guess he thinks that if, if people are forced to stay together under government pressure, of course, small government conservatives, government should not be involved in the lives of people, except if they've gotten married, then it can force them to stay in that marriage, that that's going to be good for the kid. Yeah, I guess he thinks that having um, a... In un, just all these this unhealthy relationship in a house is somehow going to going to help the kid. I mean, imagine how bad things can get if legally you, you can't divorce. I mean, let's be honest here. Yeah. Uh, if the relationship's that bad anyway, someone's going to leave. Well, that's the thing. One of the exem exemptions is if one person has been missing for two years or something like that or a year, then you can get the divorce. But by missing, it doesn't mean they've moved out. It means literally like they're a missing person. Yeah. I think it makes way more sense to have this child uh, have... A healthy relationship with both separated parents instead of being in a household that's fighting nonstop. But Lewis, you're not making any sense. You're, you're not talking logically. Oh, wait a second. That makes perfect sense. This is actually a, a, a really good example of the focus on symptoms tangentially related to the problem. So, for example, Republicans claim to want to reduce rape, and I believe they want to reduce rape. But they focus on how women should defend themselves from rape, including what clothes they should wear to make them uh, uh, less attractive targets for rape instead of a focus on reducing the desire to rape in men, right? So that that's one example. Another example, Republicans want to reduce abortions, as we've talked about, but they focus on not having sex via abstinence-only education, which we know doesn't work, and on uh, they don't focus on preventing pregnancy via birth control and avoiding sexually transmitted infections, right? They're focusing on the symptom and not really addressing the cause. They want to reduce divorce, but they focus on parents staying together by government force instead of looking at the institution of marriage and the reason divorces happen in the first place, including at near the top of that list, financial reasons, Lewis. Yeah. Uh, it's Is it selfish? I mean, what what is the... Is this is, just, again, one of those cases where because of a personal story, Congressman yeah. Gasman wants to pass a law. What a gas bag. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. 
Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Well now, here's some unexpected news. It comes from what purports to be an official document of the National Republican Party. And wow, the policy positions it contains show that the party leaders really are serious about coming to their senses and rejecting the plutocratic extremism and far-right wackiness that has stained their recent presidential, congressional, and gubernatorial campaigns. Right at the top, this 18-page manifesto proclaims that, quote, our government was created by the people for all the people, and it must serve no less a purpose. All the people. Forget last year's ridiculous pontifications by Mitt Romney and others dividing America into virtuous creators, like themselves, and worthless moochers, like you and me. This document abounds with commitments to the common good. Quote, America does not prosper, it proudly proclaims on page three, unless all Americans prosper. Shazam, that's downright democratic. And how's this for a complete turnaround? Labor is the United States. The men and women who with their minds, their hearts and hands create the wealth that is shared in this country, they are America. Holy Coke brothers share the wealth? Yes, and how about this? The protection of the right of workers to organize into unions and to bargain collectively is the firm and permanent policy of the Republican Party. Eat your heart out, Scott Walker, and you other labor-bashing GOP governors. The document also supports the Postal Service, the United Nations, equal rights for women, expanding our national parks, vigorous enforcement of antitrust laws, and raising the minimum wage. New enlightenment in the grand old party. Hallelujah! This is Jim Hightower saying, can all this be true? Yes, except it's not new. This document is the Republican Party platform of 1956. I just want to play a couple minutes of Harry Truman for you because it it is gonna it, this step back step into the wayback machine with me and what was his name and and Mister Mister Peabody and Sherman and Mister Peabody and listen to Harry Truman in 1948 speaking at the Democratic National Convention. This is uh, President Harry Truman. Let me see if I've tell me if this volume. If this volume works. It was said when old Pierre died that prices would adjust themselves for the benefit of the country. They have adjusted themselves all right. They've gone all the way off the chart in adjusting themselves at the expense of the consumer and for the benefit of the people that hold the goods. He's talking about things he's trying to get through Congress. I called a special session of Congress in November 19 and... and uh, 47, November the 17th, 1947. And I set out, set out a 10-point program for the welfare and benefit of this country, among other things, standby price control. I got nothing. 
Congress has still done nothing. Way back four and a half years ago, while I was in the Senate, we passed a housing bill in the Senate known as the Wagner-Ellender-Taft bill. It was a bill to clear the slums in the big cities and to help erect low-rent housing. That bill, as I say, passed the Senate four years ago. It died in the House. That bill was reintroduced in the 80th Congress as the Taft-Ellender-Wagner bill. name was slightly changed. But it was practically the same bill, and it passed the Senate. It was allowed to die in the House of Representatives. The Banking and Currency Committee sat on that bill. It was finally forced out of the committee. Then the Rules Committee took charge, and it's still in the Rules Committee. Deja vu all over again. But desperate pleas from Philadelphia in that convention that met here three weeks ago couldn't get that housing bill passed. They passed a bill they called a housing bill, which isn't worth the papers written on. That's what Republicans do. That's what Republicans do. They, they pass things. They say, oh, well, we'll solve the problem. Sure, we'll fix Medicare. Here's Harry Truman. In the field of labor, we needed moderate legislation to promote labor management harmony. But Congress instead passed that so-called Taft-Hartley Act, which has disrupted labor management relations and will cause strife and bitterness for years to come if it's not repealed. And the Democratic platform says it ought to be repealed. A Taft-Hartley is what is used by, now, Michigan to create the right to work for less states. That's Taft-Hartley. I tried to strengthen the Labor Department. The Republican platform of 1944 said if they were in power, they'd build up a strong Labor Department. You know what they've done to the Labor Department? They've simply torn it up. Just like today. There's only one bureau left that's functioning, and they cut the appropriation on that, so it can't hardly function. Just like today. I recommended an increase in the minimum wage. Just like today. What'd they get? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's 1948. He's talking about the Republicans. I suggested that the schools in this country are crowded. Teachers are underpaid. That there are a shortage of teachers. One of the greatest national needs... More and better schools. I urge the Congress to provide $300 million to aid the states in meeting the present educational crisis. Congress did nothing about it. Time and again, I have recommended improvements in Social Security law, including extending protection to those not now covered. Listen. Increase the amounts of the benefits. Reduce the eligibility age of women from 65 to 60 years. To 60? Congress studied the matter for two years but couldn't find time to extend the increased benefits. But it did find time to take Social Security benefits away from 750,000 people. And they passed that over my veto. That's what Republicans do if they get their hands on Social Security, is they take it away I've from people. I've repeatedly asked the Congress to pass a health program. The nation suffers from lack of medical care. That situation can be remedied any time the Congress wants to act upon it. Everybody knows that I recommended to the Congress a civil rights program 
I did so because I believe it to be my duty under the Constitution. Some of the members of my own party disagree with me violently on this matter, but they stand up and do it openly. People can tell where they stand, but the Republicans all profess to be for these measures. But the 80th Congress didn't fail to act. They had enough men there to do it, and they could have had culture. They didn't have to have a filibuster. There are enough people in that Congress that would vote for culture. Now, everybody would like to have low taxes. But we must reduce, reduce the national debt in times of prosperity. They were in prosperity. And when tax relief can be given, it ought to go to those who need it most and not go to those who need it least as this Republican rich man's tax bill did when they passed it over my veto on the third try. So, there you go. There's a, there's a lot more in there, but I, you know, <laughs> we just burned through six minutes of the show here. Harry Truman was an amazing guy, an amazing politician, and with that speech, he won the White House, but not only did he win the White House, he took the House of Representatives, and the Republicans didn't get it back for 40 years. It wasn't until the Bill Clinton administration and Newt Gingrich was able to engineer, you know, his little contract on America, his 10-point plan, six of which pointed back to a piece of legislation that simply dropped taxes on rich people. Um, amazing. From Rick Perry to Rick Santorum, many Republican sparklies reject the science of evolution. Georgia Representative Paul Brown, who ironically serves on the Science Committee, even calls evolution lies straight from the pit of hell. But while they diss evolutionary progression, the GOP as a whole seems firmly committed to devolution as its own operating principle. Webster's Dictionary explains that to devolve is to degenerate through a gradual change. Synonyms include to crumble, decline, regress, sink, worsen. The party's leaders are presently in an intramural tussle over how they should cope with last year's electoral drubbing, especially by women, Latinos, and young voters. Tea Party Republicans argue for going deeper into the right-wing weeds by promoting a new McCarthyism focused on the bugaboo of a United Nations takeover of America. Others insist the party simply has a packaging problem, so they're seeking softer ways to say, kill Medicare, and studying how to say, cut taxes for the rich, in Espanol. But few, if any, are saying such things as this, government must have a heart as well as a head. Or this, we must conserve and safeguard our natural resources for the greatest good of all, now and in the future. Or this, the purpose of the Republican Party is to build a dynamic prosperity in which every citizen fairly shares. Fifty-six years ago, under the presidency of Dwight Eisenhower, Republicans not only said sensible things like that, they put them in their National Party platform as pledges to the American people. How far they've devolved, huh? 
This is Jim Hightower saying, Of course, the last thing Republican leaders want is advice from someone like me, but here it is anyway. If you ever hope to evolve politically, ponder going back to the future. You're welcome. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. Laura Bush. Laura Bush has come out of the woodwork. She, if you don't remember who she is, and I would understand not wanting to remember, she is the woman who was married to George W. Bush during his presidency and is still married, as far as we know. And she says, you know what? We have room in the Republican Party for those people who frightened women with rape talk, presumably referring to Todd Akin and, and some of those others. Here's what Laura Bush had to say in a recent interview with CNN. It's a good thing to her that there's room for that kind of nonsense in the Republican Party. Office. Some of the issues with women mm -hmm. um, in the country, obviously, you know, last time more than half the women voted for President Obama, mm -hmm. in part because of uh, abortion, gay marriage, issues like that. Do you think the Republican Party has, has made a mistake in doubling down on those issues and making social issues so central to right. the platform of Well, the no, I mean, I wouldn't say that necessarily. And, oh. and yeah. every candidate was different. You know, sure. each one of them. There were obvious, obvious examples of candidates that were... Um, that I think frightened some women, but they were the exception rather than the norm hmm. in the party. And, you know, they're, all of those social issues are very, very heartfelt uh, by people. And I understand that. There are differences, and people, you know, there just will be. And I'm glad that in our party we have room for all of them. Yeah. I think that's important, too. There you go. It's important to Laura Bush that her party have room for people who say, well, if it's a legitimate rape, the body eh, has a way of kind of shutting that whole thing down so the woman doesn't get pregnant. Or, for example, uh, Roger Murdoch, who said, uh, you know, sometimes uh, rape is a gift from God. There is God-given gift rape as well. Laura Bush says it's important that within the Republican Party, we have room for that type of nonsense. Well, you know, like I've said before, I'm glad that the Republican Party is full of people saying things like this, mm. because if they continue to, they're going to continue to lose. It's a big tent party. There's apparently room for all sorts of uh, paranoid conspiracy theories and science-less conjecture. Mm-hmm. And Laura Bush is glad for that. That's the place for it. It's it's like a big uh, it's like a big fantasy game <laughs> where anything goes. It does. Yeah. Anything goes. Right. 
Conventional wisdom has it that the Tea Party started as an angry response to the bailouts. Like these were grassroots conservatives saying, Oh man, God, I can't stand this government anywhere. I can't believe they're doing the bailouts. Oh man, I'm so angry. Now, of course, they never actually protested the bailouts. They never protested at Wall Street. They never protested at the Treasury Department. They only protested in favor of corporations like healthcare organizations during the Obamacare. Uh, proceedings, etc. Uh, they never protested the big banks, but it doesn't matter. But they are grassroots, right? Except a great new uh, study from the University of California at San Francisco. Uh, the author of the study is Stanton Glantz, and it's in a peer-reviewed academic journal called Tobacco Control. They uh, looked at the roots of all this, and guess what they found? Turns out there was a Tea Party website set up all the way back in 2002. There's the screen capture. They have it. Welcome to the U.S. Tea Party. Well, were they angry about the bailouts that didn't happen back in 2002? Were they angry about Obamacare when Obama wasn't anywhere near the federal government back in 2002? No, they'd been planning this all along. So what were they planning it for? To protect different corporations. Now, back in 2002, it was mainly to protect tobacco companies. There was going to be an excise tax and there was going to be regulation of cigarettes and they didn't want that. So they want, what did they want to do? They wanted to create a fake grassroots organization that was outraged by government regulation. Government is too big! Get off the tobacco company's ass! And so they trace where the money came from so and where it went. At the time there was an umbrella group called Citizens for a Sound Economy. And the people who donated to it were the Koch brothers, of course, and Philip Morris. Now, Citizens for a Sound Economy eventually uh, wound up breaking up, and it became two different groups, Americans for Prosperity and Freedom Works. Ah, the two right-wing Tea Party groups that are now saying, oh, we represent grassroots Americans who came up with the Tea Party on, on their own. Now, the author of the study, Stanton Glantz, says, Nonprofit organizations associated with the Tea Party have long-standing ties to tobacco companies and continue to advocate on behalf of the tobacco industry's anti-tax and anti-regulation agenda. Now, an excellent piece of proof to that effect, back in 2002, and apparently they're still doing it today, is that Philip Morris gave a little bit of money. You know, I mentioned them in the earlier chart. So how much money did they give to the Citizens for a Sound Economy? $5.3 million dollars. Gee, I wonder why the tobacco companies would want to give $5 million to a grassroots organization made up of patriots. Well, because they care about the government and making sure that we do the conservatives. Of course not. It's to protect their own corporate interests and to use a bunch of conservative suckers for that purpose. Okay? Now, of course, the healthcare companies are doing the same thing with the same exact groups. And, of course, the energy companies. By the way, who's in the energy business? Coke Industries. And what is one of the top things that these Tea Party groups are saying? Oh, government regulation. The EPA is the most outrageous group there is. How dare they try to, you know, cap our pollution? How dare they try to regulate the energy industry in any way? Let us pollute in any way we want. And by the way, lower our taxes. I love this. Uh, back in 2002, as they looked through that same Tea Party website, what was one of the things that they advertised there? The Patriot Guest Book, because they're all patriots over there. You see how they take you for a sucker? They use your patriotism in so that you can go ahead and protect multinational corporations. Now, here comes the final little 
uh, insult to injury. Oh, they're such big patriots, and what they care about is American principles, that they are setting up these same exact groups in 30 different countries, including Israel, Georgia, Japan, Serbia. Boy, they are real patriots over there in Serbia. No, they have the same exact uh, philosophy and the same exact goals in Japan and Serbia as they do here in the United States. Make sure the government does not regulate industry and does not tax those multinational corporations. That's to protect their own ass. And for you conservatives out there, you think you started the Tea Party? You did no such thing. The Koch brothers started it all the way back in 2002. They were just waiting for the right time to spring it on you, to take advantage of you for their own purposes. Man, if you're one of these guys, you are... Do you think you're on the right side, etc.? You're such a sucker. And they laugh at you behind their back. Cleveland. I wanted to call and respond to uh, Mara from Pittsburgh, who I thought her call was amazing in many ways. But she ended with something that really struck home with me, and she said she's tired of white guys complaining about getting beat up. You say you're tired of being beaten up because you're a white guy. Well, I'm tired of white guys complaining that they're victims. No one is saying that you in particular haven't had a hard life or that your parents didn't struggle. What we are saying is that if you open your eyes and try to see things from another's perspective, maybe you will come to appreciate some of the ways, even if they are small or subtle, in which your life is easier because you are a white guy. And I'm a white guy, and I'm tired of the same damn thing. Uh, I'm a teacher. I teach in a upper-middle-class suburban area, and I try to do a lot to help my students open their minds and... All I ever get is pushback from a bunch of rich white kids who complain about how tough they have it. And it is infuriating. And again, this is coming from a white guy. And I really think that a big part of the problem is that there's not enough of us white guys willing to admit that we have privilege and that we benefited from being white guys. And I don't see anything wrong with that. I don't feel like less of a person because I'm a white guy and I, I understand the, the system has benefited me. But there's a lot of people that really seem to have a problem with that and I don't get it. And I really think we need more white guys to step up and admit that yes, we have benefited from the system. And there's nothing, there's nothing that, that doesn't make us bad people. It just means the system is fucked up. And I think there's a, a lot of credibility coming from white guys who are willing to admit this. And I really wish more of us would do it uh, because it really is infuriating. And again, the white guy from Cleveland, and, and I have no problem with that. So anyway, love your show. Keep up the good work. And uh, I really thought Mara's call was awesome. So good job. Later. Hi, Jay. This is Rachel from Boston. 
I was just calling in response to a couple of the comments at the end of the show about white privilege and male privilege, female opinion about male privilege. As a female who has studied racial divide and male dominance and someone who works in a field that looks at economic privilege, I work in Section 8 housing. I think that, A, I think that white privilege and white guilt is real, but it's completely from someone's own point of view. And I think that in response to Mara or Mora's comments, I think that being white on its own and being male on its own aren't an individual thing because America as a country makes white a completely different race. It's, you know, I'm a female, I call myself Caucasian Jew, and so I'm a white woman, but it's a completely different thing. I have a lot of things that contribute to the fact that I'm white. So it doesn't just make me, you know, a white woman. I have a lot of things that contribute to who I am other than my skin tone. And I think that it's a much bigger issue than just the color of your skin. And a lot of things play into that. So I think that just being a white man isn't the only thing. So, you know, we don't elect, especially leaders, on just... I mean, I think some people do, but especially in the Northeast, you don't elect leaders on just the fact that they're white. I mean, Barack Obama's our president, but there's more to him than the fact that he's black. So he's post-racial. I think that that's a big thing. You know, there's more to him than the fact that he's a mixed president or a black president because he he has a bigger picture. And I think that there's a lot to say. There's more to someone than just a facet of white, black, male, female. Thank you very much. I love your show. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So if you've been hearing the last few episodes of the show, it will not surprise you to hear that Scott from Philadelphia called back. He originally called in referring to the uh, the recent episode on racism that I did. He wasn't really entirely happy with it. And then a few other people called in response to his message, and all of those were played on the most recent show, number 697. So if you missed that, you can go back and hear uh, all of it. But Scott called in again. He doesn't want his most recent message to be played or for it to really be quoted, but he called because he wanted to say that he felt like his point was missed in, in the original message. And so, you know, his, his main point wasn't that he was tired of being beat up for being a white guy. I'm really, really tired of getting beat up for being a white guy. Or that if you add any kind of an ist or ism onto a word that you use to describe yourself like humanist or activist, then you're automatically a bigot for doing that. If you self-identify as a feminist or an activist or a humanist, those things are, you know, those things are okay. And it's just not true, Jay. If you are an ist or an ism, if you self-define as one thing, then you are automatically excluding all other things, and that makes you a bigot. He did say those things, but those weren't his main point. His main point was that people of all races can be shown to be racist in their own ways, 
And so it's unfair to focus so much discussion on the racism of white guys as he felt I did in my show on racism. Honestly, the, the most important part of the racial discussion, which you don't touch and nobody will touch, nobody will say it, but I'm going to say it because it really is true, is this. If every single white male in America woke up tomorrow morning and was just like, full of love and believed in civil human rights for all living homo sapiens and was a fighter and a champion for civil rights, this country would be full, coast to coast, with racists, bigots, sexists, and extremists of all sorts. It's, race is not just about the white man. If you believe in racial purity of any sort, if you think you can only marry somebody from your clan, if you think you can only look at a future within your tribe or within your nation, then you are the problem. Now, it's important to meet people where they are in a conversation like this, and that wasn't really done in any of the responses to Scott before, so I want to do that now and actually respond to the exact thing that he felt like was his main point. So my interpretation of this question is that if you feel like it's unfair to overwhelmingly target white male power in America in a discussion about racism when there's racism everywhere coming from people of all races, which there is, that's like saying in a conversation about government finances that we should focus on those people who game the welfare system, who are scamming you know a few hundred dollars out of the government each month, just as fervently as, as we should go after bankers who siphon billions out of the system to enrich themselves, crash the economy for everyone else, and then get bailed out by the government. It's like, you know, come on now. Let's not focus on who's doing what exactly and which is worse. Let's all just agree that people shouldn't cheat the system and call it even. I mean, after all, a sin is a sin is a sin. So whether it's murder or you just think your neighbor's wife is hot, it's all the same. You know, so juxtaposing these examples, it doesn't mean that it's not wrong for people to scam the government welfare system and that we shouldn't do anything, make any effort to try to stop them. It's just a matter of degrees and rational priorities. So likewise, advocating for correcting the white male power structure in America isn't about ignoring all of the other forms of racism and sexism. It's about setting priorities and going after the biggest problem first, which happens to be institutional white privilege in America. So if you're a white guy and you listened to either the recent episode on racism or the comments that were played in response to Scott from Philly and you felt like there were things said that intimated that you personally were part of the problem, in other words, you felt like you were being beat up for being a white guy, then I promise you, you are getting the wrong message. There is a big difference between the white power structure and a white person. And all of the arguments being made were directed at the power structure, not any individual, unless there was, you know, like a particular individual who's standing up to defend the current structure. So some white guy like me or Scott from Philly feeling unreasonably targeted for our whiteness by an episode about racism that focuses on white racism rather than just speaking about racism in general and all of its forms is it's like a teller down at your local branch bank feeling personally attacked for all the bad things being said about bankers on Wall Street. You know, there's a world of difference between the institution and an individual who just exists within it. The bottom line is that not only should white individuals like Scott from Philly, who actually describes himself as an equal rights advocate and obviously not part of the problem, not only should you not take discussions about white power structure personally, 
But we also have to recognize the context in which the entire conversation is happening to understand why so much of the focus is on white racism while seemingly ignoring all other forms of racism that are all so bad. It's not personal. It's just priorities. So hopefully that clears things up a bit. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show, either by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. This is not my life, it's just a fun